0: Hello, I'm Sam Birchall, reporter at Real Deals and welcome to today's podcast on how private equity is navigating government-backed aid during and following the pandemic. At the start of the COVID-19 crisis, governments announced a wave of loans to assist businesses through economic stress, and yet market participants have really struggled to access funding. What then have been the challenges? What has this pandemic revealed about the relationship between private equity and the government? And most importantly, as furlough schemes and access to government aid comes to an end, what does the future hold for private equity and venture capital-backed businesses? Here to answer these questions is political risk expert Lizzie Wills, Director of Investor Services at WA Communications. And joining us for our legal perspectives is White & Case partner Daniel Turgell. Hi both, thank you for joining me today. It's a real pleasure to have you both speak on this topic um, as it's one that's really been front and centre on the agenda of most firms and and, uh, businesses. So just to set the scene, Lizzie, as a political risk expert leading WA's investor services practice, what has your role um, and WA's been throughout this whole pandemic?
1: Hi, and thanks ever so much for having me on the podcast. Um, Our role has typically been before the pandemic um, supporting investors understand the political context for investment decisions um, and this has obviously changed quite significantly over the course of the pandemic and over lockdown in particular when the number of MA transactions has has greatly reduced. So what we've spent the majority of our time doing um, has been supporting investors in in other ways particularly helping their their management teams to understand the vast amount of information coming out of government and helping them navigate that and obviously a huge part of that has been understanding the business support schemes, how they work, the eligibility criteria around them and how they can best use government support to to help their businesses over the longer term.
0: Thanks, Lizzie, and, and thanks for being here again. Um, and Dan, coming over to you, sort of what was what your role at White & Case, and, and what's been your experience with the various bailout schemes from the, from the start of the pandemic?
2: My name's uh, Dan Tergore. I am a corporate partner in the London M&A team at White & Case. Thank you very much, Sam and Lizzie, for having me and discussing these important matters. I co-lead our fast growth practice across EMEA, and I've helped investors and their portfolio companies from the beginning of the crisis, particularly looking at what measures were available and helping them navigate through the the tough times on reducing runway and seeing how they can position themselves in, in the most efficient manner going forward. I also was advising some market participants in relation to the Future fund when it was being launched initially, And I spoke to the government in relation to the terms and and helped clarify and widen the applicability of those to market market participants generally. And since the Future Fund has been launched, I've helped numerous companies um, access the Future Fund itself. And I also have clients who are lenders under civil arrangements and clients who are borrowers there under as well.
0: Great. Thanks for that, Dan. Um, and thank you both so much for being here. It seems like you've both really been in the eye of the storm during the whole crisis. So it's really great to be able to have this discussion with you today. Um, Lizzie, so as we, as we all know from the very start, there was a certain sort of lack of clarity in how the schemes worked and which businesses were eligible for the loans. From your perspective, what were the main problems that P firms and p backed businesses were facing when access, accessing these bailout loans?
1: Yes, as you say, we've had, um, we've had a busy few months advising investors on, on what this all looks like and what the ramifications are for their business. I think when the schemes were initially announced what was quite interesting to see was that because this was such an unprecedented time uh, for the government the policy making was almost made um, you know front and centre it was being made in public and some of the the schemes that were announced in normal circumstances would have taken you know two three months of quite detailed deliberation behind the scenes And we actually saw it sort of being made in real time. And I think that was inevitably going to lead to um, some confusion and some lack of clarity around what the schemes actually meant in practice. In particular, very early on, there was a lot of confusion trying to essentially bridge the gap between what the headline announcements that were coming out of Treasury were, and what was actually in the small print in terms of the eligibility criteria, particularly as it, um, as it was regarding uh, private equity businesses who are obviously in a slightly different um, different uh, category, then you got to the, the sort of the navigating the actual application processes themselves, which, which proved a whole new challenge. Um, particularly given each of the accredited lenders were being told specifically by uh, the British Business Bank at the time that they were individually responsible for interpreting that eligibility criteria um, when they were deciding to approve um, or not approve those loans. So what you ended up with was quite a significant variation between the different lenders and you had a sort of a series of Chinese whispers going around the, the PE industry about you know, which banks were taking a more or less aggressive stance in relation to the eligibility of PE backed businesses. Um, so quite early on the main questions um, that PE seemed to be struggling with in particular uh, was whether some of these loans would be decided on the basis of the aggregate size of the fund in which case many investors breached that upper turnover threshold or whether it was being judged on the basis of, of uh, the individual portfolio companies. Um, so there's been a lot for them to get their head around. And as I say, a lot of this policy making was being made um, in real time. Uh, there were being changes made to them um, as a result of various sort of lobbying efforts, uh, particularly from some of those parts of the economy that felt that they were perhaps being Um, left behind or not addressed in terms of some of those business support loans. So yes lots of challenges uh, for PE to uh, to get their their heads around.
0: Yeah it certainly keeps your job very busy. Um, I just wanted to touch on something quite interesting that you mentioned. There's there's been a bit of controversy around kind of a lot of private equity owned companies are rejected from receiving loans because of the way the industry has relied on a model that can cut their tax bills but leaves them with debts. Um, was, there, was there a sense that the government was purposely trying to prevent PE-backed aid, Lizzie? I
1: don't know if it was a question of PE being purposely shut out of the schemes. I think the way in which some of these schemes were introduced possibly didn't take into full account of how Uh, PE-backed businesses worked and some of the the levels of debt that some of them had on their books. I don't think we can extrapolate from the way that government has necessarily behaved in terms of setting out these loans that it was sort of anti-private equity. But I think certainly there has been a misunderstanding or um, a lack of understanding at government level about how PE operates and perhaps the most effective ways that that they could be supported over this crisis.
0: Uh, Lizzie, so tax changes to carried interest is another thing that has been kind of increasingly on the headlines at the moment. Um, In your opinion, is this kind of again another example of private equity being being reined in or penalised?
1: Again, I don't know if we can necessarily say that it is private equity deliberately being targeted because the government sees that there is something fundamentally wrong with with PE. Um, What I do think is true is that private equity is seen as um, almost an easy political target for the government to to look to when they're trying to get their their financial position back on an even keel. Um, If you think back to the government's manifesto last (laughs) December, um, which now feels like a very long time ago, they obviously committed to not to raising any of the the personal taxes, so income tax, VAT, national insurance, they've said they're not going to raise. So you have to have a, a think about well, where is this, where is this additional money going to come from? And we know that they need to raise a huge amount of money um, to be able to plug some of the, the gaps that have been created by COVID. And targeting PE will not raise too many eyebrows amongst the wider electorate who um, who see investors um, and particularly PE investors in the UK as being you know people with lots and lots of um, lots and lots of money deep pockets and see them as being the kind of the quintessential those who have uh, the broader shoulders should bear the heaviest load so I think from a government perspective they can certainly look to private equity to try and raise some of that additional funding. And then you have to think about, well, what does does that look like in practice? We know that the Treasury has announced a review of capital gains tax, that's going ahead at the moment. And I think we can genuinely see um, a case being made now in Treasury by not only backbenchers, but um, but members of, of the cabinet as well. The capital gains tax is something that that should be reviewed in light of the the covid pandemic so it's now a question of the timing rather than whether or not a rise in cgt is actually going to happen and i think it is inevitable the question is just about when um, the government's going to be grappling with that question of timing um, ahead of the budget which we're expecting um, probably early december this year now um, the government's obviously going to want to raise as much tax as possible in the short term, but also bring into balance um, the economy. Make sure that you know early stage um, and nascent growth isn't compromised by by huge rises in tax. So, you know, the government is is walking a bit of a tightrope here, um, and that's something that the Treasury is is discussing at the moment. Um, in terms of the carried interest point i think that that speaks to the same um the same wider agenda it's obviously been sort of chipped away at at budgets over the last sort of five or six years and the government will be looking at whether there is any more room for maneuver in terms of carry um potentially bringing it uh, in line with with income tax potentially bringing it up um, not quite that high, but making quite a shift up to the sort of the mid 30 percent so Potentially an easy win for the government Whether they understand all the ramifications on private equity and the businesses that private equity supports in the UK I think that's probably a question for another day
0: Great, right. thanks Lizzie. And it's not so much a matter of if but when they will carry out this tax hike then? yes i think so um and dan i I just wanted to come over to you because your area of expertise really lies with the the future fund that was announced um could you talk us through what this was um when it came about and how it how it operates
2: sure so early on in the the covid pandemic there was there you know there were clear signs that Fast, fast growth, loss-making, early-stage to growth-stage businesses were missing out on all the measures that would been made available to other SME businesses. Um, and there was clearly a need for some support for that particular segment of the economy, particularly if, if the UK wanted to keep growing its, its, its technology and capabilities and to support the businesses that that were thriving in the UK prior to the pandemic. So there were various lobby groups who were requesting the government put in place schemes to to support that particular segment. And ultimately the Future Fund was announced in in early May and and launched in the middle of May. Um, And although there there were quite a few people who were concerned about who would be included or excluded as a result of the eligibility requirements. Generally speaking, market participants have been happy with the way that the Future Fund has worked in practice. And again, it, it was rushed through quite quickly. Um, so there were some TV problems. Generally speaking, things have progressed quite nicely. Applications are now moving fairly swiftly. So a new applicant now will normally find out whether they are successful in, in, a, in roughly three weeks and they could be funded within a month or five weeks of their initial application. So um, you know, there were early stage bottlenecks, but you know, generally speaking, things have gone well. Initially, it was supposed to be a 250 million pound fund, but that amount was exceeded even on the first day of applications. And so far, the government's led significantly more than 250 and it will continue to do so. And the chancellor has publicly declared the fact that he will provide funds um, for for as long as the the applications come in and companies are are eligible um, until the end of September when the fund is supposed to end. There'll be funds available if if applications are made that, that are successful.
0: Thanks for that, Dan. And I know that the, the BVCA kind of criticised it at first for <laughs> excluding some businesses. How, those challenges, would you say, have, have they been have been, have they been solved or?
2: Yeah, so, so, so some of the main criticisms and concerns of, B, of the BVCA and uh, coalition of Digital Economy, CODEC, another leading industry group, were around the fact that EIS and SEIS Investors were not able to put money in alongside the government to access the scheme Um, And the main reason for that Was state aid driven Which which, which is also the main reason why um, Sybils and the and the coronavirus loans that Lizzie were talking about earlier are not available to loss-making businesses so the state aid rules are quite rigid in that regard and um, it, it was It was determined that in order to get this scheme through as quickly as possible and available to as many companies as possible um, before it was too late, um, it meant that unfortunately those businesses and those investors had to be excluded from from the scheme so yes that that, that was initially a big concern in the industry, and kind of there are still. You know, lots of people who are upset about that and dissatisfied by that. But you know, other than very early-stage businesses who uh, heavily rely on those type of investors, you know, generally speaking, you know, later-stage businesses have not necessarily been impacted by the fact that EIS and SES investors cannot, cannot constitute match investors for the purposes of the fund. And also, we've, we've assisted numerous early-stage who have um, just decided that that they are able to access funds from investors who are willing not to take the EIS and SEIS treatment in respect of their matched investments. Um, And and, there there were on the other side of the coin people arguing that that, providing, providing government incentives to investors to match the, the government's funding and the Future Fund also was, was kind of counterintuitive and was basically the government matching government. So there are also people arguing along those lines.
0: Yeah, really interesting. Thanks, Dan. And, and just on that, so, so some of the support, support offered via the Future Fund is quite a lot generous than funds offered via Sybil are they therefore missing out on capital at a really vital time in their development? And considering this, will the Future Fund remain an attractive option for fast growth and startup companies seeking to increase runways and survive the pandemic?
2: Yeah. So uh, 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 that's an interesting question because I, I don't, I don't think the Future Fund is at all less generous than Sybil's. I mean, Sybil's for small and medium businesses goes up to 5 million pounds. And, and so does the Future Fund. The Future Fund is very different in that it's a, it's a matched equity investment. It's the first time the government's taken direct equity investments in, in UK startups. And kind of the, the whole nature of the Future Fund is that you know the government is willing to put equity alongside industry participants. So if, if an independent investor is willing to put money into a business and the government is relying on on their judgment and their due diligence in order to put money alongside them. Um, uh, but, but, but the actual, you know, the, the size of the funds is purely dependent on what the match investor is willing to put in. So if a match investor is willing to put in five million pounds, then the government will also put in five million pounds and there's no subjective test as regards to you know, the state of the business. So literally, the government will just match exactly what the investors, what the investors are willing to do. So I don't, I don't think that it's necessarily right to categorise Future Funds as less generous than civils.
0: Yeah, sure. And, and Lizzie, kind of like, what, what was your take on this? Would you, would you agree with, with Dan on that? Yeah, I think
1: so. I mean, I think what's been interesting um, about the Future Fund, which was obviously set out slightly later than some of the initial business support schemes, was that the government was was very much in listening mode around which parts of the economy really needed that support. And, you know, quite a, a concerted lobbying effort was, um, was brought about by these very early stage startups, and the government responded to that. So I think it goes to show that over the course of the pandemic, government has been amenable to stepping in and intervening and, and putting in place schemes that, that it genuinely saw um, as being necessary to support all the different types of businesses in uh, in the uk
2: economy
0: yeah, yeah. definitely and uh, i guess uh, yeah. sorry no go ahead dan
2: sorry all, all i was going to say is one thing that people don't necessarily realize with regards to future as well is that um, you know the, the businesses that that it's supporting kind of range massively from you know, companies that have only raised 250k previously all the way up to you know, potentially unicorns as well. And lots of late stage companies are also taking advantage of the future fund. So it's it supported a very kind of diverse range of, um, of of companies across the economy.
0: Yeah. And, and on that, I, I was just going to say to both of you, how, how do you think that the UK loans have compared to um, some of the state, state bailout loans in, in Europe or the rest of the world?
1: Um, from, from, my perspective,
0: um,
1: I think the general consensus has been that the u k bailout schemes have been incredibly generous, I think more so than a lot of businesses were anticipating when the coronavirus pandemic hit um, I think you know the government has taken a view that they will do anything that is required, um, be that pumping in huge huge and you know unprecedented amounts of money into the economy to make sure that that businesses can come out of this um, in one piece. I think the the bigger question now is how does the government start unpicking that, so we don't see a massive sort of uptick in unemployment, massive uptick in businesses um, becoming insolvent, because I think a lot of parts of the economy have got to some extent dependent on on this public sector support. So. Yes, I think the government has been very, very generous. Whether they have made a rod for their own back in terms of what happens next, I think, is is the big question that that now needs to be addressed.
2: Yeah, and I I agree with that <coughs> entirely, Lizzie. I think if you compare the the equity back schemes to what's what's being introduced across Europe, I think you know we really have led the way, particularly in terms of the size of the funding that's available. You know, France, Germany, and Spain have. Similar schemes, um, but you know the way it's been implemented in the UK. The take up in the market um, has been has been quite kind of radical and extremely well received by most of the market participants. As I mentioned uh, earlier, obviously there are companies that are excluded, <coughs> um, and you know I should mention it's not just EIS and SCIS match investors that have that have kind of caused. Concern, um, it's also in relation to, for example, the fact that you have to, you, you had to have raised equity and actually issued shares um, worth at least two hundred and fifty thousand pounds prior to prior to receiving uh, the future fund um, loan. And lots of companies raise money by way of convertible loan notes. So there were, some, there were some businesses who you know, have had successful fundraisings in the past, are in desperate need of extensions to their runway currently, but are excluded because of you know, the, the way that the fund has been structurally set up. So you know, there are people who are, who are you know, disappointed and who could have desperately, desperately benefited from the future fund. But on the whole, I think the, the reception has been very positive.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting because obviously there's, as I mentioned before, there's been this kind of debate around whether or not the government was kind of purposely trying to prevent P-backed businesses from accessing uh, financial aid, Uh, but you don't, you don't think that at all, Dan?
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't think the government is is purposely has purposely sought to exclude private equity from these from these measures as i say some some of the measures um may not may not be uh, be applicable due to some of the state aid um, requirements in connection with them and i think actually lots of our private lots of our private equity clients have looked at things a bit differently so even even if they and their portfolio companies could technically access some of these funds They've taken a more holistic view and asked what is the right thing to do, even if we can technically access these funds, should we be accessing these funds? Mm. And generally speaking, a lot of our private equity clients have decided that they're happy for their businesses to access furlough um, in order to ensure people's job security, etc. And um, defer tax. But... Gen- generally speaking, we've had a lot of clients who who decided that it was not in the best interest for them or their companies to access you know, the Sibils and other and other loans that have been made available.
0: Yeah, and I think it's really interesting, kind of what what was available, what was available today, and what was available during the two thousand eight financial crash. Um, that's really interesting. Um, I just I just wanted to kind of turn now and look at some of the wider implications of government backed on on the PE and VC community kind of going into the future. And you touched on it before, Lizzie, but kind of how will the government and the finance sector kind of work together to help deal with the amount of incoming bad debt accumulated by businesses?
1: Yeah, I think the longer term implications for particularly for the, the PE community. Um, is, is really, really interesting, and I think we will see a, a very different approach to that part of the economy from the government, and I think that's already starting to come through. Um, if, if we look at what was um, included in the requirements around the CL bill scheme, which was obviously introduced slightly later um, for some of the slightly larger mid-market companies, I think that tells us quite a lot about how the government is intending to behave towards companies that have drawn down on some of the business support that's been made available. I think the the main takeout from my perspective is that there's a sort of inherent quid pro quo that's been embedded in the terms of some of the loans. Um, So most notably, uh, for example, uh, some of the companies that are drawing down very large amounts of money, so over 50 million, Um, from the CL bill scheme are going to be subject to a number of restrictions on things like dividend payments uh, senior pay, share buybacks, those sorts of things. Um, And I think that is quite an interesting interjection from a government in terms of how they want to see this money being spent in the very early days of the pandemic, I think a lot of the money was being sort of handed out hand over fist as almost a government freebie to say, look, we've got this money, we want to help, we want to shore up the economy, do with it what you will to try and get your business out out the other end of this. And as the pandemic has progressed and the business support schemes have become slightly um, slightly more sophisticated, government has been embedding some of these requirements um, into the very nature of the schemes to make sure that they almost get something back which i think is really really important so i think we can definitely anticipate that there will be almost a sort of corporate reckoning coming out the other end of this crisis and we're already starting to see that where businesses will be will be judged on on what they have spent business support uh loans on how they've behaved towards customers and their staff in terms of uh, in terms of the furlough, and essentially whether they seen to have had a, a good crisis, um, and those that are deemed to have not behaved well, I think will um, will face a bit of a reckoning in the future.
0: Yeah, that's that's really interesting, listening. I and I think we're we're definitely already seeing some of those businesses already kind of keen to keen to show that they've sort of had a good crisis like you said um, Dan did you did you have any thoughts on this at all do you think the yeah, yeah.
2: what's what's quite interesting on the on the future fund side is that the, the government as I said is only putting money where private investors are willing to put money so so it's a bit different in that regard and the government's obviously hoping that businesses are going to to perform well and you know, generate a return for them in the future. And actually, the eligibility requirements you know, have, have, have changed a bit since it was initially launched. But one of the eligibility requirements makes it open to more participants. That includes the fact that you no longer can only access this if you have a UK TopCo. You can also access it as well if you have a US TopCo and have been a member of a US accelerator. So in fact, they, they kind of widened the applicability um, to a certain extent as well. And they also they also enabled you know, founders to co-invest alongside the government as well when that wasn't clear in the first place. So I think the future fund is a bit different to, to the loans um, you know, whereby you know, the government's hoping people can repay them, but ultimately they may not be able to. And with the future funds, That They're making equity investments and Hoping that these companies will ultimately come through um, The the coronavirus pandemic and 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 be winners and and in fact a lot of the Businesses that are being supported are technology-enabled businesses who are very well-placed you would hope to come out um fighting from this from this pandemic and digital transition is is extremely important to the economy and these are the exact type of companies that you could argue the government should be backing and actually from a taxpayer perspective the fact that independent investors are willing to put their money alongside the government and support those businesses as well should be seen as a very positive thing because you know the government's not just putting money into a business that you know may have otherwise failed because their shareholders
0: decided to abandon it. Definitely. And I think it would be, it would be really interesting to sort of have this conversation a few months from now or a year from now and, and see what shape everyone's in. Um, excellent. Lizzie, Dan, it was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for your insights and thank you for listening.